Welcome to Business Talk Sister Gok. I'm Becca. And I'm Ruthie. And this week we are doing part two of how to buy an established business with Daniel Lee. Uh, if you missed last week's episode, you need to go back and listen to it, especially the ending. He talked about even how he delivered a child. <laughs> but he has gone through the process of purchasing a business after being in corporate America. And we're super excited to pick this conversation back up. Thanks so much for being here with us today. Absolutely. I had a great time. <laughs> yeah. So our first question this week is, how did you go about talking with the business owner when you were matched? You went to the broker and, and now you found something that, okay, you potentially are interested in. Uh, so that's great. So last week I mentioned this book by Walker Dybal called Buy Then Build. And this is the second most important piece of advice that I received. It is behave like you are interviewing for a job. The business owner needs to want to sell the business to you and like you for a few things because it just makes the transaction a little bit easier. So the first, so it started with a phone call, the business broker, myself, and the business owner. And I asked him just things like, what are you most proud of? What do you think you will miss about this business? And, and, and I think others might find the temptation to like, you know, be a little bit more skeptical about what's he hiding? You know, why does he want to sell? So this particular gentleman, his son was part of the business. He didn't want to buy the business. So one from the outside could think, oh, you know, what are they hiding? And really come um, that kind of with an inquisition. And so I just took a, just a totally different approach. Like I was interviewing for a job at this company and I was intrigued in trying to understand what this person was passionate about. And he was passionate about the culture, very passionate about the way that they go about doing business is what differentiates them. And then what I found really quickly is that those values were the same values that I had, and it really became natural. And we ended up really setting the business broker off to the side and he and I just, you know, ran, ran the race together. And mind you, this is March, 2020 days before the country shut down. Okay. I wrote a little um, article on LinkedIn and says how I bought a business in the, no, or something. So I quit my job in the middle of a pandemic and bought a business. <laughs> little did you know that the home exteriors would just explode, explode. during that time i talk about that all the time we are sitting in different rooms we've got you know budgets i don't want to overlook there are a lot of people out there with very difficult circumstances and there have you know been layoffs and things but i think they're the, the market that we serve is really doing pretty well and they're using their home differently. Uh, the budget is different. Folks aren't going to Disney world. The childcare budget is a little different with, with kids staying home all last year. And they've been sinking that into their homes, not to mention the home values have been, have, have been incredible. So that, that was a little stroke of luck. Okay. So what did you need to know before considering putting in an offer? Like you, you talked with him and everything, but what did you kind of have to have in writing and what made you feel comfortable to move forward? You kind of talked a little bit about that, but more logistically. Yeah. So, so here's, here's the biggest, the, I think the scariest thing or that's not out there. Um, there's something called a letter of intent and that's what you would call your offer. And the letter of intent is just a 
a sketch out of what do we want the terms to look like. And there's nothing really binding in it other than a few factors. There's an exclusivity, like you're only working with me. Uh, there's a non-disclosure. He won't talk about the offer with anybody. I won't talk about that he's selling it with anybody. But the numbers are are very loose. And in my situation, um, this business had been up for sale. And at the 11th hour, literally a week before closing, it fell through because of the buyer. And so when I walked into the business broker, this thing really had just fallen through. And he picks it up off the floor and says, hey, this isn't out there yet, but take a look at this. And so what you need to know before considering putting in the offer, for me, number one thing, is there a role? Can I add value? Um, I remember just really burned in my brain. There is a gentleman that started a coffee company here called The Roastery. His name's Danny O'Neill. And he went to uh, Rockers and, where I did my MBA. And they did a little talk. And people asked him, were you just so passionate about coffee? And he's like, no, no. Um, it, it's not the product that I'm passionate about. It's about creating something that I'm passionate about. And so I wanted to make sure there was a role. I'm not a window installer. I can't install the window. So I need to know that there's an operational general manager role that I wanted, that I could play. So that was first and foremost. Second thing, what happens? Are there processes in place to continue to have sales? And this gentleman had started this company 20 years ago. And what's kind of interesting about windows to do a whole home, it's really expensive. So people end up doing two, three, four, the ones that they need done. And so it creates just a reoccurring revenue. So there's an established sales process, just like what I was looking for in my target statement. And once it met all those criteria, only then did I start looking at the financials and you sign the NDA, you get three to five years of financials and you can run some models to see, does the business throw off enough profit that you can successfully repay your debt? Or if you have shareholders or however you want to do it, some sort of return on investment with a cushion. Uh, create some tests to understand, all right, if business slumps 30 to 30%, what happens? Where do I get in trouble? And the other thing for me personally is business owners can run a lot of personal expenses, maybe kind of in a gray area uh, through the financials. And it was important that you strip some of those out. And what I really liked about this business is I felt like he ran it like a business, not as a tax shelter which, you know, you can, you can run some expenses through a business that are really more personal expenses. And so I felt the, like the word I'm looking for, I felt like the, the financials were clean and simple. And when I realized there was a role for me to play, it had some sustainability and that the financials were clean. I felt it was time to put in an offer. Um, we had gotten to a relationship that was close enough. We were talking every week, one-to-one that he just told me what the business was for sale at. And we just went with his number that he had previously agreed upon. Um, you could have picked at it. Hey, it's during COVID, your revenue's down, the multiple's off. Um, but I was really buying a, a machine. Uh, think about it as a car. The, the, the car runs and it's up to me to get in that car, fine tune it and drive it faster. Uh, so the price, you know, you know, 10, you know, 15% really wasn't that important to me. Um, I felt like I could get in there and I could improve upon kind of the operational efficiency and make this thing run a little bit faster. Okay. 
Okay. So you, you purchased this business. You really liked the guy that you went with and the company that you went with and met all this criteria. Now talk to us a little bit about the, how you transitioned into that role of leadership. How did you help ease your employees? Now, surprise employees, maybe not surprise, maybe they knew, but <laughs> how did you ease into that with gaining their trust and whatnot? So first thing, uh, uh, I spoke with the owner and I said, hey, I'd like to have, um, you know, how do you think this should go down? Because he'd worked with uh, several of these employees 10 plus years. So they've been around a, a, a very long time. And the part of our asset purchase agreement, APA, was he was going to stick around in a sales role for 30 days and then provide some consulting for the next 60 days. So he was, there was a time when we're both there. And so we sat down and sketched out what are your duties? What are my duties? Who comes where, when? So he wanted to divulge the news to our two project leaders first. And so I met with the project leaders. And then after that, another guy. And then after that, the entire staff and just shared with them a little bit about who I was, what the heck was this guy doing, jumping from an insurance business into a window and door business? What does he know? So started that conversation with kind of high priority people that you need to have buy-in, tell them about myself, ask them about their selves. And then a follow-up meeting to talk about, all right, here's who you go for this question. So for example, like what project are we working on each day? Um, he, the prior owners uh, kept that. And then I eventually transitioned into that. Um, do we, you know, expense questions, things like that. So we tried to answer what questions would be on their mind and how it would impact them. And then eventually just you saw, um, it started out as a lot of the prior owner, a little of Daniel, and you kind of call that 90-10. And we just whittle, whittled that down until I was in it in 100%. And the way we structured the deal is the son was kind of the operational mind behind the business. And he stuck around for six months so he could keep the, you know, the, the business running while I learned the front end. And the owner stuck around for up to three months, 90 days. And to help me learn the, the front end of the business. So you can just tell that they were very invested in seeing this thing succeed. And just with the next, next chapter of ownership. Um, so the transition worked out much, much like that. And so far, you know, it was very successful. Yeah. So how soon do you change things when you're purchasing a business? How long is that time frame where you actually start going, okay, now I want to um, improve these things? Yes. Uh, that, so that's a great question. And so I, I got that exact question, for, especially when I was one-to-one with, with uh, some of these employees, what are you going to change? And they were really concerned about what the business focuses on and differentiates them in the industry against the average. And they really had a sense of pride in that. And I assured them that what they do well is what this company does well is what attracts me to purchase this business. The changes that they're going to see, I don't know all of them yet. They're probably going to be operational. There's going to be a different style of doing things. I am going to try to grow the business. The owner left the business at 62, 63 after starting at 20 years. 20 years. That's a lot of effort. Um, whereas I come in with a lot of energy ready to grow it. So what you're going to see change-wise, change you're going to see from trying to grow. So probably the first 30 days, I mean, there's, there's little things, payroll system. There was a manual payroll system. Um, probably 90 days, I started to implement some inventory checklists just recently. So we're six months in. 
Um, we're on several paychecks of entering your time on your phone instead of a paper page, paycheck, uh, time card, things like that. Um, so I would say, you know, I, I tried to phase, phase it in, at, you know, every, every 30 days or so, but I didn't do much change at all in the first 30 days while people were trying to get to know me. And one of the things that I think is I, I've heard just feedback is as a new owner, you know, white collar guy, my, you know, my, I haven't done a day of real work in my life. I spent time out in the field with them learning what they doing. I stepped out on a scaffold one day just to see what it was like to be out on a scaffold and it freaked them out. Like, what are you doing out here? And it's, well, I'm asking you to get out here three stories high. I mean, I gotta, I gotta know what it's like. Um, so that, you know, trying to understand them at the level where they're at, uh, I think is really beneficial. And I think that's just a leadership lesson. That doesn't have anything to do with this particular role, but I was really sensitive to, I was always in a knowledge base environment uh, where this is a more a hands-on produce something environment. So I'm stepping into something, at least from the outside looking in, that I have no idea. I personally would simplify it to say, look, it's just people working together to produce an outcome. I know a lot about that. Okay. So how did you navigate? Like, <laughs> I mean, you're out there on the scaffold. Clearly people know more than you. So how did you kind of navigate that almost like a power vacuum and dealing with people who have more experience in the industry than you do? Well, that I think is a lesson you learn as a leader and you don't need to be the person with the most knowledge. Hmm. Perhaps you need to be a person who can analyze. So as we talked about in our, our last podcast is my strength is strategic. I can take a bunch of information, synthesize it, ask some good questions, and maybe you come up with an idea. Um, so I've never felt like I needed to have all of the power or the information so that I'm, I'm always asking questions. How would you guys do this? What happens here? And it's taken me a long time and they've been very patient to repeat the process over and over. And I'm sure I've asked the same question. And, and I usually preface it. Hey, can I ask a dumb question? And, you know, I, I have a joke, you know, especially when I speak in public about uh, we all know there really are dumb questions, even though people say that, that there's no dumb questions. We all know there's really dumb questions. Just ask them anyway. Because somebody else has got the same dumb question. And it's just a flip side of, you know, trying to make people approachable. Um, and I just open, hey, hey, can I ask you a dumb question? I know I've asked this nine times. And as long as I'm willing to learn what they do, then people just have been very, very gracious. I feel like even in my prior role, whether it was the same situation, I would lead a claims organization where we're taking a $2 million case to trial. I'm responsible for the department, but I don't know anything about the motions and the people that are handling the nitty gritty technical details. Um, but spending time to learn and care and help people know that their job is important. Yeah. So I have a question. Um, I think that you have a lot of discernment and, and when you're talking about asking dumb questions, whatever, but like when somebody maybe doesn't have a lot of experience in evaluating these kind of things, or maybe hasn't done as much research as you have, how does a person know to evaluate the integrity of the business owner who is selling? How do you, what impacts your decision process in that and figuring out if it's going to be a good fit? Because um, I see that, I foresee that being an issue for some people when they have that um, letter of intent and all of that. Yeah. So I, I guess maybe what I would say, so 
I've had the great opportunity of having 15 years of corporate experience, great mentors, a sandbox to try things. If you are doing this in a little bit earlier in your career, then the, the number one thing I would encourage you to look for is consistency. There's a book called um, The Leadership Challenge by Kuzis and Posner. And I'll always remember, they use the acronym, do what you say you will do. So D-Y-W-D something. Um, look for the congruence of a person's rhetoric and their action. So when, when, what does the person say? So like, what does the business owner say? What does the business look like? What, like so I, I looked at all, all of his reviews online. Uh, what do, what are they saying about, you know, what's the public saying about him? So I'm looking at that. And then I'm trying to evaluate the same thing in the financials. Does what he say is valuable is exactly what comes, what, what comes across. You don't really get a chance to talk to the employees. So I didn't talk to employees till about a week before, till we felt the sale was certain. And that's going to be pretty normal for a small business. In my understanding is you're not going to get to kick the tires and evaluate it. Um, but there's a lot of other subtle things that you can see to determine is this person's, um, what they say is congruent with their actions. And that's what led me to develop a sense of trust. Okay. And so you're coming at this with 15 years of experience and you're um, more established in your career and as, as an adult, honestly, and, and all the things that you've done, what would be the perfect time to start looking for a business to buy, whether that's um, in relation to age or experience or um, interest or whatever, what would be the perfect time for someone to start looking into that? Well, I, I guess what I would say for the advice is once you understand where you want your end to be, and if a business is the vehicle to get you to that end, then it's time. That could be at 22, that could be at 40. The flip side of me being established, I have learned to live on a corporate salary and my life is structured around that. So there's much less risk that I could take. If I'm 22 without dependence, without a mortgage, without all these other you know, things that you build up in your life after a course of 15 years, you, there's, there's more room to take a risk. And so I was able to experiment, have successes and failures in corporate America. If a person wanted to do this at 22, you just, take, you just have success and failures at the same time point in time and and you might just start smaller and you know less less risky i guess so to speak so so what happens if it fails how do you reinvent yourself if you get knocked down when you're 23 gosh there's just a lot of time to go forward so i feel like as you're younger there's a higher margin of error uh, think about you know your 401k when you're in your 20s you're in a really risky portfolio, but as you move up into your fifties, you're in a less risky. So I felt like, and that's what attracted me to an established business because it already throws off a salary. I really didn't have the opportunity for uh, it, it to fail at all. But the flip side of that, if I go for a little safer business, less of an upside, I could not have gone for a little tech startup. Whereas if I was, if I was earlier in my career, I could take, I could take some of those risks. So the question about, the age, I don't know if it's the age. I think you have to define what you want. What do I want my life to be like? What is success of my life? 
And what car do I need to get in to get me to that point? That might be a corporate job. That might be start your own business from scratch. That might be buy a business. That might be volunteer for my whole life. Uh, but I think it is, it is, um, it would be different for everybody. Yeah. So if you were to do this again, what would you have done differently? Oh gosh. Um, one of the realizations that I had when I was in my sales job, uh, talking to small, small agencies and other businesses, I was like, what's the difference uh, between me, like me and them? I talked to this, you know, um, this lady that started her own business and I'm like, gosh, why can't I do something like that? And I've got all this training. I got all this good stuff here. I, you know, there were certain things that I could point out that maybe the business could do better. So I feel like what, um, you know, people that have gone before me had, they, they, they either had the confidence in themselves to take the risk on themselves, the belief in themselves. So I think I would have, I, I mean, I'm not sure how I would have done it, but I would have liked to have done it earlier, not drastically earlier, but maybe several years earlier and just had the confidence that, you know, a business owner, just a regular person out there hustling, trying to make, make things work. So probably do it over, might try to do a little bit earlier than, so I, I, I think I bought it when I was 41, just after 41, my birthday's in August. And so perhaps sometime between 35 and 40 to allow myself to build, the, you know, I still had a good set of, um, a good set of training. Okay. What tools and resources would you recommend checking out for someone who wants to prepare to purchase like an existing business? So there are definitely that buy then build book uh, without question. I think that is a you know really good piece of uh, if you could fault like an instruction manual, there's another great book out there. I don't remember it, um, but it's a Harvard Business Review book. If you search for how to buy a business, Harvard Business Review, uh, it'll talk about it'll talk about that. Those two things are really important on the technical elements of where do you go and find it. And there's some in the Harvard Business Review book, there's some really interesting strategies like creating a search fund, going to get investors. Uh, if you have a business plan, you go start talking to investors and they will start to back you. And there's, I've heard people say it, but there's no shortage of capital out there. They're just shortage of great ideas and people willing to go chase them. So if you can, you can find that idea or find exactly what you want. Um, if you're willing to put in the effort, there is capital out there to help you do it. Wow. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. We have really <laughs> enjoyed our conversation with you. If you guys missed the the last episode, we talked about how Daniel sounds a lot like Tom Hanks. Um, and Becca That's and what I, were... I think anyways. <laughs> you, we should have a vote. You know, we should have a vote. You know, how many people, how many people think he sounds like Tom Hanks? <laughs> we'll how many people think he just sounds dumb? <laughs> Those will be the two options. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but we are, um, yeah, just really thankful to have listened to your knowledge. And it, there was just like so much that was really um, applicable to, like you kept saying, like, this is not so much just a, like a purchasing business thing. This is a leadership thing. This is a management thing. This is a whatever. And like, um, I just thought that was really cool. So we are going to transition to the sister gawk portion of our episode. And this week, I am going to tell a story about a time when I flew by myself. Yeah, you're <laughs> going to think this one's a little weird. So and this is before COVID too. So this is even more like social shaming. Like, 
<laughs> okay, okay, go ahead, Rudy. So I um, was flying by myself. It was my senior year of high school. And I was sitting next to this elderly couple who were sitting to the right of me. And um, it was before we had even taken off. And all of a sudden, they were just like encased in this cloud of smoke. And I was like, what the heck? And then they, they were both like freaking out, just like so panicking. And they were like calling the, the um, flight attendant over and everything. And, and then the, the smoke just kind of dissipated and then they calmed down and stuff. And then right before we took off again, it happened again. And they were like freak, just like, again, just all the dramatic everything. And, and I look behind them and there was this girlfriend and her boyfriend and the girlfriend's like, punching her boyfriend in the leg just like stop it stop it and I was like what is going on and he was smoking this vape and like blowing the vapor and it would just like get like it was just engulfing (laughs) this elderly couple in front of them and and so then she like made him stop and everything and then he goes um we we took off and we're on the flight and everything's going fine and all of a sudden he like he gets up to go to the bathroom and then we're sitting there and it's normal and all of a sudden it goes boom 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 and this alarm starts going off for the bathroom and the flight attendants there's two or three of them ran up there and like whipped open the door <laughs> like just like, I didn't even know you could do that like yeah. whip open the door when it's locked but apparently you so they, can they had a they had a key and then like had to like open it up and then he was just standing there and she was like sir were you smoking in the bathroom and he was like it's like no no I wasn't she's like I need you to be honest with me he's like the alarm went off and like he's like no I didn't I didn't and he was like did you flush it down the toilet and he was like no and she was like do you realize and okay to be honest she probably did not handle this very well at all because everybody around <laughs> around him was like freaking out because she's like talking about she's like this could, it could be a really like a health hazard for the entirety of the plane like she's like you cannot well, like flush cigarettes down the toilet and he's like it's just my vape it's just my vape and then she's like give it to me give it to me right now and he's like he's like well am I gonna get it back and I'm like sitting there are you joking like just give it to her this is really what you're concerned about she's like sir you could be facing a $30,000 fine that's like a federal offense don't you read the signs yeah it's like everywhere in the bathroom too and so then she like takes his vape and he sits back down and his girlfriend is just like enraged and sitting there just like doesn't doesn't speak to him for the rest of the flight and then we leave like the plane and everything well we meaning me and the other passengers not them Ruthie's just like, let's be best friends. No. <laughs> I stuck it out with them. I stayed the long haul. Just kidding. So I leave and I'm sitting in the airport and I was waiting for Becca and my other siblings to pick me up. And it was like probably like two hours of sitting there. And right as I was about to leave, then he and his girlfriend come off the, like the plane. <laughs> and I was like, oh man, like they were detained for so long. Then <laughs> she's probably like 20 feet ahead of him, just trucking, like her arms are crossed and she's going and he's just like hanging his head, walking behind her. <laughs> so well, did he get his vape back? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> that's what I want to know. <laughs> I'm surprised they weren't like escorted by like U.S. Marshals or something. Honestly. Oh man. Uh, well, thank yeah. you for joining us this week, Daniel, and thank you guys for tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, uh, you can find Daniel at what's your website? Windura.com. 
Yep. WINDURA.com if you want to check us out. And if you want to connect with me, best way to do that would be uh, find me on LinkedIn. I'm Daniel G. Lee on LinkedIn. Yeah. And if you enjoyed this episode, give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Have a great week.